through noon, only on WBAI. I'm Mike Sargent with This Day in Racial Injustice. On this day, June 19th, back in 1865, after white Southerners concealed the Civil War's end for more than two months, Union troops arrived in Texas. They brought news of freedom. For the first time, local black residents learned that the Confederacy had lost the war and that they were free under the Emancipation Proclamation. That date became known as Juneteenth and for generations has remained a day of remembrance, joyous celebration, and hope. Remembrance of the hardships and the pain of enslavement, joyous celebration of survival, and hope for the opportunity and peace that freedom ought to bring. Juneteenth does not denote a struggle completed or finish line reached. Black Americans faced many threats to their liberty and their lives in the years after the Civil War and face continued injustice still. Slavery did not become illegal throughout the entire U.S. until ratification of the 13th Amendment on December 6, 1865. But it's important to know that the amendment's language still in force today created an exception authorizing involuntary servitude as punishment for crime, which continues to enslave inmates across the nation today. Even after the 13th Amendment became national law, many southern states, including Kentucky and Delaware, resisted ratifying the provision for decades. Mississippi, the last state to do so, refused to pass ratification legislation until 1995 and didn't formally file the passage until 2013. Black Americans quickly learned that freedom's potential celebrated with hope on Juneteenth would take more than one law or one day to fulfill. In 1877, just 12 years after the abolition of American chattel slavery and as a part of political compromise, the U.S. government abandoned its promise to protect newly emancipated black people and withdrew federal troops from the South. This decision marked the end of Reconstruction and a brief period of multiracial democracy drew federal troops from the South. This decision marked the end of Reconstruction and a brief period of multiracial democracy. Instead, black men, women, and children were left vulnerable to racial terror and disenfranchisement that would last for generations. From 1877 to 1950, at least 4,400 African-Americans were victims of racial terror lynchings while the nation's legal system turned a blind eye, allowing white lynch mobs to kill with impunity. Today, more than 150 years after the enactment of the 13th Amendment, very little has been done to address the legacy of slavery visible in contemporary inequality and injustice. Though the enslavement of black people created wealth, opportunity, and prosperity for millions of white Americans and gave birth to the American economy, its impact is largely obscured and ignored. Slavery in America traumatized and devastated millions of people and created false narratives of racial difference that still persist today. These narratives, including the ideology of white supremacy, lasted well beyond slavery and fueled decades of racial terror. 
segregation, mass incarceration, and inequality. Juneteenth is an opportunity for national reflection. It invites us all to confront the promises of liberty and justice that remain largely unfulfilled in this nation. Strengthening our understanding of racial history empowers us to create a healthier discourse about race in America and foster an era of truth and justice. This day in racial injustice, June 19th, Juneteenth was brought to you by the Racial Justice Initiative and WBAI New York in hope that racial justice in America will be shaped not by the fear and the resistance of those who doubt its importance, but by the dedicated commitment and action of those who believe in the possibility of racial justice. And the previous program was Leonard Lopez at large, heard Monday through Friday, usually at 1 p.m. here on WBAI New York. Stay tuned for Trauma Code coming up here. And it's two minutes past 2 p.m., so stay tuned. Trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say I'm loud, say I'm clear for the whole round. in my heart Remove all the bars that keep us apart I wish you could know what it means to be me Then you'd see and agree that every man should be free Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio uh, here in Brooklyn, New York on WBAI uh, with my lovely co-host. Hi, Dr. Cassandra Raphael here. Happy Monday, everybody. And, and of course, happy Juneteenth. Um, and that, that music that we heard was uh, Nina Simone. I wish that I knew what it is to be free. Uh, appropriate. recognizing the day a little bit, the date a little bit. Um, so, you know, we, we got a little bit of a late start today, just like two and a half minutes, but uh, we would have been remiss to interrupt that very important history lesson uh, that was on before us. Um, but yes, today, June 19th, although it's 2023, we're recognizing June 18th, uh, June 19th, pardon me, 
1865, which is the day that the last of the enslaved Americans were freed in Galveston, Texas. Yes, indeed. Uh, and there's certainly that a lot could be said about that. We're not necessarily going to have a, a Juneteenth episode per se. Um, I know a lot of people have off today, maybe enjoying the nice warm weather. It's 80 degrees in New York City. Um, but I'm going to be working tonight, so people in central Brooklyn, please be on your best behavior. I don't want to meet you in the trauma bay tonight, uh, as, as, as nice as all you people are. Um, and uh, this, uh, I guess yesterday... Uh, Cassandra and I actually caught a game down the street at the uh, at the Barclays Center. Right, we got those tickets uh, quite quite a while ago. We were very excited to see Brittany Griner and the Phoenix Mercury take on um, the New York Liberty, Brianna Stewart and the New York Liberty. To be fair, um, and and that was a wonderful game. Uh, they're playing amazing basketball. Um, so not just Brianna Stewart, but also John Quill Jones, Sabrina Ionescu. Um, John Quill Jones had actually seen her back in 2019. She was playing for the Connecticut Sun uh, back in those days. And those were the M- the WNBA finals back when I saw her. So hopefully she brings a little bit of that finals energy to the Barclays Center with the New York Liberty. That would be great. Um, and uh, we weren't the only ones. There. I was surprised how full it was on a f- who's going to the WNBA on Father's Day. But uh, I also saw DJ Premier was there with his son, for example. So we were in good company. Listen, WNBA. Well, they they're saying they sold out. They sold out their tickets for that match. I mean, I, not for nothing. I, I bought them largely because I knew that Brittany Griner was coming to New York, and I wanted to be in be in the, in the crowd. You <laughs> and, know? and she's uh, she was on the bench these last couple of days with an injury. Um, and we know that she's been through a lot and even suffered um, hecklers and provocateurs at the airport and things like that. So um, the struggle continues. She's going to be back around, I think, in a month or two. Um, uh, but- that was a, a very good time. And um, also, it's uh, my, my younger son's third birthday tomorrow in the New York Liberty. We're kind enough to shout him out and uh, and give him a happy birthday shout out on the on the Jumbotron. So that was also really cool about the game. Um but yeah, like I said, hopefully th- these uh, women bring some finals energy to the Barclays Center, and uh, there are some there's some good sh- good basketball to watch over there uh, in the interim. Um, but of course, you are listening to the Trauma Code on WBAI, uh, and uh, for our show today, we have an interview with one of my uh, friends and mentors, a trauma surgeon at Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital in Baltimore. Uh, Dr. Joseph Sacron, who uh, survived a shooting as a child and is now, uh, that has very much influenced uh, his life arc and work. Um, so we're going to have a little tiny uh, musical interlude. I just thought it would be nice to uh, play a little bit of DJ Premier, um, having seen him yesterday, one of the kind of the greats at DJing and producing uh, hip-hop uh, over the last uh, generation or so. He was also at the game yesterday, so he he's on the... Uh He's on our minds. Um, and then we'll go right into that interview with uh, Dr. Sacron. No way you'll never make it. Come with the wish. 
I break kids, step into my zone, mad rhymes will stifle ya. Lines like rifles go blast when I kick some. A lot of rappers be like one-time wonders. Couldn't say a fly rhyme if there was one right under their noses. I hate those motherfucking poses, but I'm so real to them, it's scary. And with my unique skills, nah, you can't compare me. And no, we don't make whack tracks. And Welcome back to the Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald uh, on the air recording uh, with a friend and mentor of mine, from the Johns Hopkins uh, University in Baltimore, Dr. Joe Sacrin. Dr. Sacrin, can you hear us? Are you with us? I can hear you. Thanks so much for having me, Simon. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, I'll, I'll try to give a, a short introduction. There's a lot to say, and I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit. Um, but uh, Dr. Sacrin is a trauma surgeon uh, at Johns Hopkins, as well as has uh, a lot of experience as a coalition builder, a policy advisor, public health expert, and a nationally recognized advocate for gun violence prevention. Currently the director of emergency general surgery, as well as associate professor of surgery and associate chief of the division of acute care surgery at the Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, in Baltimore. Uh, and uh, thanks again for joining us, uh, yeah, Dr. Sacrin. That was a mouthful. Thanks for that kind introduction. Uh, th there's there's much more to say. Um, and, you know, I know you, I, I trained with you at Hopkins uh, a little bit, and, and you're someone uh, that has done a lot of work, including in the media sphere. I've interviewed you before uh, for a podcast focused, uh, you know, for a trauma surgery audience called the East Trauma Cast. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've been on CNN and on a lot of other national um, platforms, but this is my first time interviewing you. It may be our audience's first time hearing you. Um, so without kind of repeating every other interview, I just want to give you a short chance to introduce you uh, to our New York audience. Uh, who are you, Dr. Sacron, and how did you get here? Yeah, well, look, again, th thanks for having me. It's, it's always great to be talking uh, to New Yorkers and maybe those that are listening beyond um, one of my favorite cities in the world. And And I, you know, come to this conversation really with a multiple different kind of vantage points. I come to it as, of course, a trauma surgeon right now um, at Johns Hopkins Hospital. But I think what's even, you know, more profound is what got me to this current place, which is the fact that um, at the age of 17, I went from being this, you know, healthy high school senior after I was shot in the throat with a 38 caliber bullet. And so my kind of, you know, story starts off as a patient, um, as a survivor that then was inspired to go into medicine and to become a trauma surgeon. And honestly, Simon, really at that point in my life, I mean, I was 17, right? You don't realize you're mortal. You have no idea what you want to do in life. I think most of us at that age are like that. And what I realized that it wasn't enough to simply just give back and try to give other people the same second chance. Because, you know, despite how good one may think they are as a trauma surgeon, uh, despite how incredible the, the trauma center may be, um, if someone comes in that's shot in the head, there's very little you can do to bring them back to baseline. And that's why I've been working at this intersection of medicine, public health, and public policy to try to do everything I can beyond the bedside to make communities safer. 
Right. And, you know, you have a, a master's of public health from Johns Hopkins, a master's of public administration uh, from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, uh, as well as uh, your undergraduate degree from George Mason, where I, I just learned you were a medic and a firefighter as well. Um, and in addition to being a trauma surgeon, so you've approached, um, you know, the, the survivors of trauma, particularly gun violence from a lot of, of different angles um, and including kind of public advocacy where you've become, I think, very um, effective and influential in the media, including the social media sphere. Um, I know in, in 2018, there was kind of this comment where the NRA told uh, doctors to stay in their lane with regards to gun violence prevention, and you were able to kind of uh, what is that? Jiu-jitsu or you were able to Aikido, which one is it? You were able to turn that the the audacity of that yeah. statement back on them and say, hey, this is our lane. We take care of the people who are shot. Yeah. Um, so, you know, coming at this as as a, as a lot of different, you know, directions, um, you know, what have you learned? And, and first of all, just trying to talk to people and what can be a very frustrating uh, moment uh, in you know, uh, with regards to firearm violence and in, in increasing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, let me let me just say a couple of things. First thing I would say is that, like, the, it's all those things that you mentioned. It's not like those were kind of in the plan. As I started going down this kind of path and this journey, I started to realize the skills that I kind of needed to develop and build in order to be as effective as possible. It's what took me to the school of public health, and then it's what took me to to the Kennedy School, right, of really trying to understand, you know, the practical aspects of being able to impact populations. And I think, like, what I've learned, and I, I, I've thought about this a lot, actually, when I spent a year um, right before COVID and during COVID in the U.S. Senate with uh, Senator Maggie Hassan, um, where I think there was a couple really, like, what I would say concrete and important lessons that I took out of that. The first is that um, healthcare professionals are a critical part of policymaking. But in order for that to happen, they have to understand a little bit about uh, have policy made. So I learned, so I learned really, you know, three things when I was in the U.S. Senate. The first is um, that healthcare professionals are a critical part of the policymaking process. And in order for that to happen, they have to be able to understand what that actually means and, and to understand kind of the complexity of policymaking, especially at the federal level. But then policymakers also have to understand the value that we have of understanding the front line and really kind of being able to tap into our expertise beyond the bedside. The second is that um, there's a lot of people with the right ideas, right? But I, I think what is time and time again very true is that Simply having the right ideas without the right strategy and approach is a recipe for failure. You have to be able to understand who the stakeholders are, who is for you or for your proposal, who is not going to be in favor of it, and how do you work with all the different folks to kind of reach that level of execution where you're going to able to operationalize and implement the ideas that you think are important um, uh, for people. And then the third is, and I, and I know this is probably a hard kind of statement to hear, especially in how divisive we are, but bipartisanship actually really does 
result in a better process and better policy making. You know, when I was in the Senate, I would see both Democratic staffers and Republican staffers coming in every day and really remind trying to do everything that they could to make this country a better place. And I think the commonality that exists among us as Americans, we have a lot more in common than we have that divides us. That's not always seen, right? And I think that sometimes it's not that the you know end results are so different. I don't think anyone wants to see children injured and killed, right? I think the difference is how do you get to those end results? And that's where some of the ideological differences come into play. So those are kind of some lessons that I've learned that have been kind of beyond the bedside that I think have been really uh, important to try to be as effective as possible uh, in this space. Yeah, and, you know, um, this we're not the only country that's ever had mass shootings or school shootings, uh, but the frequency that it happens here is a uniquely American phenomenon. Um, and recently we saw, a, uh, I think, a mass shooting in Serbia. We People who are students of history will know that Gun policy in Australia trains drastically after one uh, dramatic school shooting there. Um, but there's something different about uh, the national discourse here, right, about the politics and, and about how do we uh, approach, you know, an, an American phenomenon that doesn't seem to follow the, the rules that other countries do? Yeah, I mean, this is a uniquely American problem, right? I mean, what you're describing, the differences between us and the other countries, you know, like Australia that you mentioned, is that after the Port Arthur massacre, the prime minister at the time, John Howard, within like, you know, I think it was like a couple of weeks, they implemented national, you know, comprehensive firearm uh, strategy, right? Now, I'm not saying that exactly what they implemented would be exactly what we would need as a country, right? It's different size country. There's a lot of differences. But the point is, is that they weren't willing to kind of just sit on their hands and simply kind of stand on the sidelines of history as like, you know, people continue to be injured and killed. And I, and I think, you know, we've had a really tough time as a country, you know, getting the moral courage to do it. And I think it's been for a variety of reasons. Um, what I will say is that over the past decade, our country has changed. Hmm. And I think that's hard to sometimes see. And it's, it's easy to lose hope because Look, like it took nearly 30 years for the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act to pass last year, right? I mean, it was like nearly like 30 years. However, in cities and states across this country, right, where most governing, by the way, happens in America, right? Most governing in America happens at the local level. We've had hundreds of pieces of common sense gun legislation that have passed. And they've passed because of, Simon, people like yourself, right? Because of moms that are pounding the pavement and showing up in their red shirts to the state houses, organizations like, you know, Brady and Giffords and others that are, you know, literally showing up every day, okay, to try to be part of the solution and are holding elected officials accountable. That has resulted in a cultural transformation that has led to this conversation that we're now having. It led to having a president that ran on a platform that part of his priority was gun violence prevention. That never happened, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So this shift is happening now. Is it happening fast enough? Of course not. I mean, here we are at a time when 
gun violence is the leading cause of death in children and adolescents across America. And so we need to prioritize our kids. We need to prioritize people in our community. And we need to have the moral courage to ensure that we're pushing for responsible gun ownership. And uh, you can maybe talk about a little bit of the details of, of that legislation you mentioned. And I've heard some people say that um, there are improvements in gun violence since that legislation has passed. Um, why don't we start there? Yeah, so look, let me say a couple of things. So I wrote a piece about that legislation in the Scientific American um, after uh, it came out. And and I just want to say a couple of things about that. The, the, the first thing is that that legislation is the first step. And I think we we need to be really, really clear about that, right? That legislation is about, um, you know, take, and again, I'm not saying it doesn't, and, and won't save lives, but it's taking that first step to really try to come up with a multifaceted approach to this public health problem. And I think that's what, that's what people have to recognize is that, Simon, there's no one solution to this issue, right? People always ask, well, what's the one thing that you can do? So the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, I think, again, did a variety of things. Some of the stuff it did was um, supporting states for like different, like, um, uh, extreme risk protection orders, right? Or crisis, you know, intervention orders by incentivizing them, right? They were, um, created a pot of essentially $750 million. They did things like protecting, um, uh, implemented protections for, um, victims of domestic violence, right? Um, they did things like trying to, um, uh, ensure that there was, you know, the under 21 people that were under 21, there was this enhanced, uh, review process. Uh, they implemented things like penalties for straw purchasers. And of course, they focused on, um, funding, uh, community violence intervention programs and provided $250 million of funding for community-based violence prevention programs. So those are just some examples of things that were in there. There's a few other things, of course, that, are, that I haven't mentioned. But the point is, is that, like, did it go far enough? You know, for those of us that have been working in this space, no. But is it, is it a good first step? Yes. And, and I think, you know, we need to continue to kind of push that needle forward. And, and um, I definitely hear what you're saying. It feels like we're in a moment where a lot is possible, but, and my dates might be a little bit off, right? But we're, how many years, 30 years past when there was an assault weapons ban uh, in the United States that was allowed to expire? And, you know, now it's a fashionable thing to do for a lot of our elected officials to pose with even children holding, you know, military high velocity assault rifles. Um, and obviously getting rid of those assault rifles would not, for example, in a city like Baltimore, probably drastically change uh, a lot of the gun violence there. Um, but we know in these um, mass killings and these mass shootings, uh, how 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 favored the AR-15 is among, among those uh, murderers. Uh, and we also know as trauma surgeons the difference between, you know, treating a handgun injury and then uh, the injury that results to the bodies from high velocity assault uh, weapons. You know, so yeah, I mean, that, you know, that, that, um, you know, the assault weapons ban sunsetted, uh, I want to say in 2004, right? It was a 10 year ban that uh, was signed in, in 1994. And, um, and look, you're right. Like the, the majority of homicides and the majority of deaths, 
you know, 90% of them are handguns. But we are seeing these military-style assault weapons that are used in, you know, mass shootings that are often, you know, highlighted in the media that we see, right? Um, and there's a couple things that are very important about that. Number one is uh, the type of carnage that results from, uh, uh, you know, these uh, events is very different than what you see with a handgun. Because the energy, right, that results essentially in a, in a blast effect on, um, you know, the human body is tremendous. It's why, you know, parents in Uvalde couldn't identify their kids and had to perform DNA tests. That's how bad the carnage is. And, and most Americans don't, are not privy to that. They don't get to see that, right? Um, we, we worked with the Washington Post recently on a piece called The Blast Effect, actually, to demonstrate um, the differences between a handgun and an assault weapon. So there are, you know, things that we can do to help minimize the type of carnage and the type of destruction that we're seeing um, uh, across this country. Yeah. And, you know, and I apologize a little bit. I might ask you some questions that that uh, aren't sort of the narrative that you're used to. But um, one of the things that's becoming more apparent to me, there's a book that's coming out that's going to be called Gun Capitalism. Um is about how, you know, firearm violence is not only an American problem insofar as we see it more here than in many other countries, but many other countries that suffer firearm violence uh, suffer from violence inflicted by American firearms. Um, this is particularly true in Mexico. Mexico, yeah. Um, you know, so how does that um, how does that influence how we work against gun violence, right? It's not just a cultural thing. It's also there's a whole economic system set up behind uh, producing and selling these firearms. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's such a great point, and and it's why, you know, there's uh, the Mexican government is you know suing, right? Uh, it's because of the influx of firearms that are coming into into Mexico. Um, you're 100 percent correct about that. Um, and and here's one of the things that Simon, at the end of the day, like when you think about you know, the problem that we have, and you think about, you know, just the vast number of firearms that exist in this country, mm -hmm. those that are being used here and funneled elsewhere. Um, to me, at the root of the problem, okay, uh, is this easy access to firearms, right? 100%. And if you think about that, like on a on a graphic, right? And if you put like easy access in the center and you took easy access and you added hate or easy access plus impulsivity or easy access plus, you know, fear of safety or suicidal ideation, right? That formula results in, you know, potentially injury, death and destruction and disability, right? So it's a, ma it's a matter of trying to really kind of reframe how that access problem exists in the state of Maryland, as you know, has really actually pretty strong, right, common sense gun legislation. But about two thirds of our illegal firearms, they're coming, you know, up the I-95 iron pipeline. And it's the same thing, you know, in what's happening, right, 
but different routes where you have farms going to Mexico or to even other other places. Um, and there's a big, you know, incentive for the industry, uh, right, from an economic perspective, as you mentioned, uh, to try to produce more and and get them out there. I mean, that's a very clear, you know, scenario. Right. Um, and, and, you know, there is, you know, other legislation. I think um, uh, American firearm makers have liability sh- uh, shield against the, the result of the, you know, um, predictable use of firearms. Um, uh, anything else you want to want to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think like, listen, like, you know, what you're talking about is the protection of lawful commerce and arms act, right? The placa. And that was passed in 2005. And that essentially protects farm manufacturers in the U.S. from being held liable. Like that just needs to go away. Like, right. Like it, it's like the only like, you know, essentially industry that is like protected like that. So uh, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, and, you know, uh, we had uh, I don't know if you know D. Watkins. He's an author from East Baltimore. Um, but he, he made this same point about, you know, in his memoirs, there's a lot of gun violence. And he identifies the point, just as you mentioned, the easy access to firearms, how easy it is to get a pistol. Um, but one of the other papers that came out recently that, uh, in, you know, you mentioned one where now firearm violence is the leading killer of um, of children and adolescents in the United States. But the other research that came out recently is how, um, you know, uh, how the deaths related to firearms are not concentrated necessarily in areas that uh, is the stereotype, but actually in red states, particularly if you consider suicides, uh, the toll of gun violence is as much as anywhere else. Um, have you had conversations, like you said, across the aisle? Um, has, has this been uh, at all influential in, in people in those red states? Well, a hundred percent. I mean, so as you probably remember, um, I, I actually used to live in Charleston, South Carolina, right? And one of my, you know, former residents who is now a trauma surgeon there, Dr. Ashley Hank, who does a tremendous amount of work in South Carolina, um, really trying to kind of, you know, elevate this conversation about what's happening in the South, which often, you know, frankly gets neglected and is not thought about. And you're right, for the different types of, you know, um, mechanistic injury, whether you're talking about suicides or homicides or unintentional injuries, those can vary based off of geographic location. Um, but it is it is a huge problem that often gets neglected and not thought about, which is why, like, we have to be, you know, I think really deliberate about what we are passing in, in our, in our cities and in our states. And it's why, you know, it's not just, you know, about policies, right? It's the way I look at this is about policies and it's about programs. And it's about in cities, especially, right? Like Charleston and Baltimore and so many others. How do we break down the silos, Simon, that exist? So we can work together in parallel, meaning, you know, the healthcare systems talking to each other, right? The healthcare systems talking to law enforcement, talking to the public health department, talking to businesses where we're all a collective part of the solution. 
for far too long, like, you know, we kind of do our own thing and then just expect, you know, you know, this problem to be solved. And that's not going to work out that way. And the other thing I would just say about, you know, and it's not just the South, but this is really cities across the country, is we have to invest in violence prevention as a line item budget. It can't be that like, you know, like every year we're like, oh, okay, is the public health department going to fund this or not? Like, this is just something that we do to save lives and, and to make communities safer. And I think until we continue to have, like, have that type of commitment, um, it's really difficult because what we see are programs, right? There's like this ebb and flow where programs come and go. Yeah, and, and I've, I'm on a community advisory board of some violence prevention efforts in Baltimore. And definitely the, the planning that's done very much takes into account how much funding has been committed because you don't want to commit to do something that you can't commit year after year to fund adequately. Um, so that definitely speaks to your point. Yeah. And I, and I'll just add one thing, like, you know, some of the, uh, we heard this comment recently at one of the summits that we had here in Baltimore, where, you know, you'll have like a certain program that is like, you know, funded. Right. Um, And it may be through like one organization, but then like two years later, like that funding goes away and then some other, you know, areas funded. Well, then there's no continuation of institutional memory. Yeah, it, well, exactly. And not just institutional memory. Like, like if, if like all those fundings go away and now like you can someone else and now they're trying to reinvent the wheel after you've spent the past two years, like working on it, where is the legacy of like mm-hmm. long-term investment in those programs? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a credibility gap when you're starting over. Yeah. Um, uh, well, definitely, you know, and in, in thinking about, you know, what's coming up, it, it can be frustrating, you know, because after Sandy Hook, uh, the massacre of, of children in, in Connecticut, there was a thought that maybe things would be different. And, you know, it feels like deja vu in Uvalde, although there's another layer of the kind of um, the police response and, and, and how, how much that was a failing of public safety. Um so, you know, what moving forward do you think is likely to happen that would prevent us from, you know, having another massacre at, you know, whether it be a movie theater, a synagogue, a school or a festival or, or the same thing over and over again? Yeah, I mean, that's a really tough question to answer because, unfortunately, I, I think we are going to have and will continue to see these type of massacres until we're willing to be serious about the type of solutions and investment that need to happen. And those solutions and investments are, you know, again, part of them are policies and, and stuff that we've talked about at the federal level, but part of them are like engagement of businesses and other different stakeholders. We, you know, for far too long, I think a lot of these social issues, not just gun violence, but like these big social issues that we face They've been on like the shoulders of a very few people. That burden has been on there. And until we all start to realize that, like, we all have to be part of the solution. And, you know, I think sometimes these shootings, as people call them, they sound theoretical to people, right? Because, you know, they're sitting in their living rooms, surrounded by their loved ones, and they're like, oh, another shooting. Well, like, you know, like these aren't like shootings, right? These are massacres. And... I'll tell you, like, there's been a discussion that's been had and that continues to be had that, like, do we need to be, like, showing these images? Right. And I don't I don't claim to know the right answer to that, by the way, right? 
I, I will say though, if sorry to interrupt, but um, yeah. a point was made to me that I found um, uh, people have often called this kind of that we need an Emmett Till moment. And someone made the point that it wasn't an Emmett Till moment. It was a Mamie Till moment that caused that uh, shift uh, related to lynching in, in the civil rights era. Um, so maybe, you know, there's a role in the families. Uh, you know, it's not our place as the media, as the trauma surgeons. Um, maybe, as you said, you know, writing about the blast effect, describing that. Or I know, um, what's her name? Amy uh, Goldman and Goldberg in, in Philadelphia was talking about what bullets do to bodies. Um, and I know you have a relationship with many families, but there may be a power that they have um, in creating a Mamie Till moment. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think, like, right, you can call it, you know, a variety. I think the point is, is that, like, will the will the pictures, right, whether you compare it to the example that you're giving or what happened in Vietnam or, right, I mean, there's a million, right, different scenarios that you could you could talk about. Will that change the way Americans feel, that exposure to understanding the type of destruction? And I think you're right. I mean, you know, in Allen, Texas, right, the recent um, mass shooting that we saw, there was a video that you may have seen that circulated around that demonstrated, you know, essentially, you know, bodies on the ground and like a child's like, you know, brain essentially splattered on the pavement. And I didn't share that video. I didn't share it because not because I didn't think it would be impactful necessarily, although I don't know 100 percent, but because I didn't feel like it was my place. Like, I don't right. know if the family has seen those pictures. I don't know if the family, even if they have seen them, do they want it out there? And so I just didn't feel like it was appropriate for me to do something like that. Um, but I think the conversation, right, you know, is is an important one to have because we continue to see our young people being you know, slaughtered on our streets. Um, and, you know, when is it going to be enough? Right. And and I know you're friends with uh, was Fred Grutenberg, whose book is coming out, American Carnage. Yeah, it um, came out yeah, last month. Oh, it came out already. I don't have it yet. I think I ordered it. Um, um, and, you know, we saw that that group out of uh, Florida um, was kind of maybe the first group of survivors to really use social media and try to take control of that narrative. Um but, you know, so far we've seen kind of limited, you know, effectiveness in, in terms of changing the course of, of the trajectory of American violence. I mean, I, here's what I would say is I, I think we have seen some change. I mean, think about, you know, um, what President Biden has done in regards to kind of implementing, again, a, a number of different executive orders around this issue about making sure that we got an ATF director that's able to crack down on the bad apple gun dealers, among many other things, and about getting the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act to pass. So I, there has been a lot done, but I think maybe your point is more kind of, you know, underpinning the fact that we're still facing significant injury and death in this country. And a significant challenge. We haven't gone far enough. And I think, I think that's right. Like, right, we need to um, continue moving the needle forward because you know, every day we have people being injured and killed. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, we may be in a moment of opportunity, right? I think recently we saw that NRA, who was thought to be kind of untouchable, kind of unravel under their own corruption uh, in many ways. Um, and we've seen, you know, that the head of 
that whole kind of political movement, the, the icon of uh, Donald Trump now facing federal indictment. Um, but at the same time, they, they you know, the kind of pro-gun uh, forces still control the judiciary and control enough of the legislation, uh, legislative process to keep progress from being made. Um, so I don't know if you have any other kind of closing thoughts on on kind of where we go from here or what to focus on uh, as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, we have to continue having the conversations. We have to um, hold our elected officials accountable, right, um, when we vote. I mean, I think that's 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 so critical, right? So, you know, I'm I'm the the vice chair of, of the Brady board. And, you know, Sarah Brady used to say, and I'm just paraphrasing that if if, you know, you can't change the laws, change the lawmakers. Right. Um, I so, so I think those things are, are going to be so critical for us to do. And then and then I think that we need to really I, be serious about how we have. Uh, and understand what a comprehensive solution looks like, right? Um, like there is like no, I think, you know, again, one solution for this public health problem. And I think that the level of misinformation that exists in this country that is, you know, disseminated by, you know, social media and other platforms has resulted in us being so divisive. Uh, and, and it is, it is just demonstrating, Simon, the fragility of our democracy. For sure. So we have, we have to do a better job of really understanding, uh, and listening to people with the intent to understand, because that will allow us to reach kind of these common sense solutions. The majority of Americans are not that divided, you know, when you poll, you know, most Americans, including responsible gun owners, they agree with a lot of the different kind of, you know, moves forward, whether it's expansion of background checks or extremist protection orders, right? But we're being held hostage by, you know, the minority where, you know, you have, as an example, the leadership of the NRA that frankly doesn't represent the membership. And we have to do better than that. Right. And, and I think, you know, you make an important point. I think we came very close. January 6th came very close. A couple people made certain decisions that kept that from being an assault on the Capitol with assault rifles. Right. Um, so uh, definitely a moment of, of tension. Uh, and But we, uh, you know, recognize opportunities to kind of move forward. Um, anything else that you want to say about that before I, I give you a, a, a different topic of a question? No, I think I'm good. Uh, and I didn't, I have to apologize. I didn't give you a heads up, but usually when I have a guest on, I like to give you opportunity to share some kind of cultural recommendation, a book, a movie, an album, a work of art, a performance, anything that is kind of giving you life that you want to share with our audience. Yeah. You know, um, I've been, I've been really actually thinking, uh, recently, um, and, and honestly, like, She's incredibly young, but I think has been incredibly powerful uh, in what she has done over the past couple of years. But I've been thinking about her a lot recently, which is Amanda Gorman, with everything that's happened um, in uh, Florida. I'm sure you've seen about, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, the banning of, of, of uh, uh, the book and just 
those all those discussions, I, I think young people um, like her have really inspired me. Have inspired me to, um, you know, I think demonstrate the moral courage that we have to have to try to make a difference in this country. And it shouldn't be young people that are teaching us those lessons. We should be guiding them through that. So she's been kind of really um, a big part of my inspiration. And as, as I know, you you probably are very well aware as your audience is, there's a number of different, you know, books, but really the hill we climb, right? That's, that's the one that um, I hold near and dear to my heart recently. And and I think it's more of that that's going to unite us together as Americans. Excellent. And I think that's a very timely recommendation. I appreciate it. I, I, you know, I'm aware of her work and have read um, uh, snippets of it, but I definitely have to sit down with that book yeah. and read it through. Yeah. Well, Dr. Sakharin, Joe, uh, thank you so much for coming on The Trauma Code. It's a pleasure to see you. And I'm a little disappointed. I made every effort to come down uh, to the uh, recent uh, gun violent advocacy summit in uh, in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins and between a couple of family crises and a child care problem, I just couldn't make it. So, uh, well, we'll just have to make sure you're there next I'll year. I'll catch so the I'm... next one for sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. And thanks to uh, all of the folks in New York for listening. All right. Thanks for joining us. All right, sir. Take Bye-bye. care. I'm gonna... Welcome back. Welcome back to Trauma Code. Uh, here we are in studio, and if you're just joining us, that was an interview with uh, Dr. Joseph Sakran, who's a, a trauma surgeon at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, is also a survivor of gun violence himself, and a uh, well-known uh, advocate uh, for uh, sensible gun policy and very active in the legislative uh, sphere. Uh, and it's a, a good time to, to point out that if you... Uh, like what you heard and didn't catch all of it, you can catch all of our uh, previous episodes on the uh, WBAI radio archives on the website, WBAI.org, or just search Trauma Code wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and the music that we had on uh, just now, that was a little piece of... Uh, Fanfare for the Common Man, played yeah. by the New York Philharmonic. Yes, and that, uh, anyone who last week got a chance to see the New York Philharmonic in the park, which they do every year... Uh, that was what they opened up with. Definitely one of the highlights, the opening of the kind of New York uh, public uh, uh, summer uh, concert series. Um, so that was definitely uh, something we were excited about. And I also mentioned we played some DJ premiere earlier. That song was Mass Appeal uh, with uh, by Gangstar, his collaboration with uh, Guru, uh, who uh, died in 2010 from multiple myeloma at the age of 48, gone too soon. But definitely... Um, legends of of hip hop from Boston, but who made their success here in Brooklyn? 
Um, one of the things that I appreciated about Dr. Sackman's interview is, <clears throat> or it seems one of the themes of, of what he was saying was uh, kind of engaging physicians and, and I guess various clinicians to kind of speak up. If you're noticing that there's a problem, it's not just the job to, you know, help the person send them out and carry on, but really if we're noticing a problem, it's incumbent upon us to, to ask for change, to demand change, um, because we have firsthand experience with what it means to, to help folks on this level. Um, and so last month we were in the, uh, we were in San Francisco for the American Psychiatric Association's annual meeting. And there were actually a few doctors giving talks on being in our lane when it comes to speaking out about gun violence. Um, so it, in trauma surgery, yes, but also in psychiatry. And you pointed out also that we are also, when we're talking about gun violence, we're also talking about deaths by suicide, which, as we know, is an increasingly significant problem these days. So um, a lot of very poignant points and themes in that interview with, with Dr. Sakrin. And we're going to close out the episode with uh, uh, that poem that he mentioned uh, from the book, uh, the Hill We Climb uh, by Amanda Gorman uh, that was performed uh, for the inauguration of our president. Uh, but just to remind you, you know, we volunteer to do this because we have such a blast uh, on the air with you all. Um, but uh, we can't do it for free. We have to pay the bills. Um, and so uh, we need your support uh, to uh, to keep the transmitter going and, and the legacy of WBAI going. And you can do that at give to WBAI.org or online at WBAI. Dot org, hit the donate button uh, or call in uh, a pledge at 212-209-2950 at 212-209-2950. And if you appreciate us, we appreciate you. As I mentioned, you can find the Trauma Code wherever you get your podcasts uh, under Trauma Code. And on social media, our handle is Trauma Code WBAI. And you can email us at Trauma Code WBAI at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us, New York. Here it is, Amanda Gorman, the hill, the hill We Climb. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands 
before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promise to Glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So, while once we asked... How could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert. How could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be. A country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. But one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the windswept northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake rimmed cities of the midwestern states. We will rise from the sun baked south. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover. And every known nook of our nation in every corner called our country our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful when day comes we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it Woo!